does it. But before that, let's first go to God in prayer. Father, Lord, again, you've revealed to us your gospel and your word um, uh, in the scriptures. And we thank you for this. And Lord, help us understand it uh, properly. Uh, Lord, be with our minds as we work through this passage. Be with our hearts as we are ministered to by this passage. And Lord, let the word spoken today um, not be a hindrance, but um, let it reveal what you are trying to say to us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Guys, Paul is committed. He's committed to protect the church in Galatia from the false gospel of the circumcision group and bring them back to the true gospel that he, along with all the other apostles, have been preaching. The true gospel that says we are not saved by our own obedience, we are not saved by how many times we go to church, we are not saved by how many times we read the Bible, we are not saved by the things that we do or don't do, we are saved by what God has done for us on the cross through Christ, which we'll see in much more detail later. But this is important to us, because some of us here today, maybe, like the people in Galatia, are not immune to being persuaded to false gospels. Some of us here may have lingering doubts of whether or not the gospel that the Bible preaches is actually true. Was it man-made? Did, did we come up with it? Or was it actually from God? And I hope through this text today we're going to see that Paul's defense um, of this gospel will encourage us to reason with Paul to see that this gospel the Bible preaches is, in fact, true. And I also want to know another thing before we, before we move on. When we see Paul's arguments, right, it's important for us to note that this isn't just about winning arguments. This isn't just about saying, look, we're right and you guys are wrong. No. This whole thing is, is, is much more than winning a case. It's about winning hearts. It's not just about defending God's case. It's about proving to God's people God's love for them. So don't picture a, a, a lawyer trying to win an argument in a courtroom. Picture a lover trying to persuade his loved one back to himself. As we move forward, let's keep that picture in mind. All right, I want to point out three things in how Paul defends the true gospel uh, and why it is true. First, the true gospel was not created by the wisdom of man. The true gospel has the power to change man, and the true gospel is not dependent upon the will of man. Was not created by the wisdom of man, has the power to change man, and is not dependent upon the will of man. All right, first point, the true gospel was not created by the wisdom of man. In the first sermon, right, two weeks ago, we saw Paul, along with all the other apostles, preach the same exact gospel, down to the minor detail. And we see Paul's gospel preached in chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. If you want to go there, you can. It says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying this is the gospel, and all the other apostles preach this gospel as well. Things like us being God's children, concepts like God being our father, uh, 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 things like Jesus' work on the cross is what saves us, not our own righteousness. Things like God will receive the glory at the end of all this. All those little aspects that Paul preaches in verses 3 to 5 is also apparent with all the other apostles everywhere throughout the New Testament. Now, some of them might have different emphases when they, when they speak about it, but it'll all be there down to the minor detail. Take a second to think about that. That's pretty stinking crazy. But miraculously, 
the gospel they all preach is same as the one I'm preaching. How could this be unless it comes from the same source? Look at verse 11 to 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's whole argument hinges in this thesis. That I got it from God. I never met any man. And to prove that this meeting never took place, Paul gives us his travel schedule, his itinerary, his alibi, if you will, in this passage. That's why all these different places, kind of Syria, Sicilia, Judea, all these kind of places, right? And he wants to convince them that I actually never met them. I never talked to them about this gospel. He does this in verses 15 to 21. Read with me in your inner Bible. Don't follow along with me as I read it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, he waited for three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit, to visit Cephas, who was Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's trying to prove, guys, I never talked to them. I never met them. There is no way I could have copied and pasted what they're saying to my message. So how could our message be the same? Well... Actually, with a bit of brain power, we could easily think of a few explanations, right? The first one being that Paul's just lying about it. He's just lying about his whole itinerary. There's no way we could prove that what he's saying is true, right? Well, actually, there is. Just like in a courtroom, at this point, we're going to call on a witness. And the witness's name is Luke. Luke is the guy who wrote the book of Acts. He compiled in the book of Acts all the events of the early church history with the events that surrounded the lives of the apostles at the time. Hence, the Indonesian translation of the book of Acts, Kisah para Rasul, right? So, in Luke chapter 9, thankfully, in Acts chapter 9, thankfully, Luke recorded Paul's itinerary as well. And it matches up with what Paul claims his itinerary was. Okay, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 21, he says that, I did not meet with them, but I went to Damascus. Okay, Luke, prove it. Acts chapter 9, verses 22. This is right after, after Paul was converted as a Christian. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So after the conversion, Luke testifies that Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles, but he went to Damascus. What Paul is saying in verse 16 and 17 is confirmed. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Big deal. One city out of the five, right? He, what about this whole Arabia thing? He, he could be lying about that. He could have hung on to Damascus for like two nights and then went to Jerusalem and saw the apostles, right? He could have lied about that. Well, let's see what Luke has to say about that. Go to chapter, Acts chapter 9, verses 23 25. This is why Paul was still preaching the gospel in Damascus. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, luring him in a basket. So we see the context that Paul is running away from the Jewish people that's trying to kill him because he's now preaching the gospel. And where does he run to? Luke doesn't specify it in Acts, but if you look at a map, 
you'll see that the city of Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, lies right on the border between Syria and another country. Guess what that country is? Arabia. There is no other way, no other place really for Paul to go because the other side of that is the Mediterranean Sea. Now, yes, Luke didn't specify he went to Arabia, but he was running away somewhere, and the place that would make most sense for him to go to is, in fact, Arabia. Google it. Not now. Later. Just Google it. You'll see Damascus right on the border of Syria and Arabia. So it's very likely that what Paul says in Galatians 1.17 pans out. He did actually go to Arabia. Okay, stick with me. So if this is true, then it's amazing. It means because Paul, having never met any of the disciples, down to the minor detail, had the same message that they're preaching. Hold on, preacher man. There could be another explanation, right? Luke and Paul could both be, be, be in on it. They both could have just been lying about it. They schemed together about this whole thing, about this itinerary. Just kind of made it all up to trick people into thinking that Paul's message, Paul's gospel, is from God. Well, he could have, but think about it again. This is very, very unlikely. Why? Because if they're both plotting this together, they just named about 100 people in their story that anyone could check with. Who were these 100 people? Look at, uh, look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Paul named two people. Who were they? Cephas, which is Peter and James. Anybody could have just gone up to Peter and James and said, hey, is, is, is what they're saying is true? And then after that, um, in Luke, I mean, Acts chapter 9, verse 22, Luke mentioned the Jews that Paul was preaching the gospel to. Anybody could have just gone to them and said, hey, is, what, is their itinerary true? Did he preach the gospel at this time, at this date? And then in 9.24, he talked about all the Jews that wanted to kill Paul. They could have asked them. 9.25, he mentioned all the disciples that helped Paul escape. 9.26, he talked about the disciples Paul met in Jerusalem. And then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul even said, I, I went to the Christians in the region of Judea. I mean, if you add all these people up, probably about 100 people or so, probably more. Now, if I was going to lie in a courtroom about my alibi, I would not name too many people. Why? Because they could just check with any of these people to confirm whether or not I was really there at that time, right? But what Paul and Luke is saying here, we have nothing to hide. Ask any of those people. Ask Peter and James, they'll confirm with you. Ask the Jews that Paul preached the gospel to, they'll confirm to you. Ask the disciples in Damascus, they'll say the same thing. Ask the Christians in Judea, they'll say the same thing. Ask the Jews that try to kill me. They'll tell you they're chasing me that night. <laughs> Ask anyone. It'll tell you that I never had a meeting with the apostles. But yet, down to the minor detail, what I'm preaching and what they're preaching is the exact same gospel. Do you know how hard it would have been to get all these hundreds of people on the same page without Google Docs? It's impossible. The only explanation, therefore, Paul is claiming in verse 11 to 12, for I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive from any man, but from Jesus Christ. I don't know, man. Could be other explanations, right? That, that's too mystical to me. That's too spiritual to me. We live in an age of reason. He could have, I don't know, he could have read the Bible, Right? He could have read the New Testament. That's where he got it from. He read the New Testament, and he copied and pasted what he saw in the New Testament everywhere else. Well, sure, except the New Testament wasn't written yet at that time. None of the other books the New Testament was written. 
Galatians is one of Paul's earliest books, right? Written sometime in AD 48 to 50. And the only other New Testament book that was possibly written at that time was the Gospel of Mark. And that's even stretching it. He couldn't have read it anywhere. Well, okay. Okay, okay. So the disciples, the disciples then, they told Paul the gospel. He didn't have to meet with the apostles. Just normal Christians, like everyday disciples, they would know the gospel. That's where he got it from, right? A Christian came up to Paul and said, hey, Paul, here's the gospel. Sure, but then he probably would have just killed him. Remember, Paul, before his conversion, was a persecutor of the church, right? He was killing Christians. Look at Acts chapter 7, verses 58 to 59. This is Paul leading the, perse- uh, 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 the, the martyrdom of Stephen. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And, they, and the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen. Saul was leading this whole movement. Verses 8, 1 to 3. And Saul approved of his execution. But Saul was ravaging... The- Ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What Christian's going to go up to him and say, Hey man, ever heard of the gospel? Dead. It makes no sense. The only way he could have gotten it is from God. He hated Christians. He hunted them down. And on this note, let's move on to our second point. This is Paul's second defense. The true gospel has the power to change man. This is Paul's second defense. If, okay, if you're not convinced of my alibi, if you're not convinced of this whole itinerary, that I never met with the apostles, but somehow we still have the same gospel, if you don't believe that, take a second to consider my life. Think about the transformation that I went through. Look at verses 13 to 14, and also verse 23 in Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, now this is Paul, verse 23, after he became a Christian. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's life was drastically changed. And remember, Paul's not not your everyday Pharisee. He was a movement leader. For Paul to convert would be the equivalent of the leader of a terrorist group converting and started plying churches everywhere. That's bizarre. Think about all that Paul had to give up. He had friends, he had family, he had Jewish teachers, he had colleagues. He had whole histories, whole support systems, a whole way of life that I'm sure included some kind of financial structure for his well-being. He had all that, but when he received the gospel, when the gospel was revealed to him, his love for Christ became so intense that it overshadowed any of that. Listen to what Paul says about himself in describing his change in another book in the New Testament called Philippians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. I was was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which is like the best tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul was the guy. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You don't believe my alibi? Fine. Look at my life. Do you for a second would think that I'd give up all that prestige, all that power, all those relationships, all that status, all those achievements for a lie? Why would I do that? People used to love me. Now they're trying to kill me. My reputation's ruined. My support structure, my financial security's gone. I have to go back on everything that I once spoke against. Do you know how humiliating that is? I have to face friends and family of people that I've killed. Sorry, I was wrong. What your husband and wife and child and friend and father and mother believe, it was actually true and I shouldn't have killed them. My bad. Do you know how hard that is? Why would he do any of that? For a lie? Think about it. He had absolutely nothing worldly to gain. He was preaching the gospel at his own expense, so to speak, worldly expense. He's saying, but I can't help and preach this gospel, even if it costs me money, even if it costs me success, even if it costs me my reputation, because the God I love has loved me and given me his all on the cross. If you don't believe my itinerary, look at my life. Now, let me take this opportunity to bring us back to the here and now, okay? Let me ask the question, has this gospel impacted you? Has it changed your life? Now, okay, you don't have to go through the transformation like Paul did, okay? None of you were persecutors of the church, I don't think. It doesn't have to be as radical, but our passage, along with the rest of the Bible, does confirm that once this gospel truly hits you in a way that saves you, you will go through some kind of change. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Matthew 7, 17 to 20. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Friends, if you've encountered this gospel, this true gospel, in a way that saves you, there will be transformation. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, this whole transformation thing, this, this can be confusing, right? What does it mean that I'm change? What does it mean to have the fruits of salvation? What does it mean that my life is transformed? How can I tell that I've been transformed by this gospel? And how can I tell that other people have been transformed by this gospel? And this is confusing because usually there's, there's different camps that say different things. And, and generally, these, all these camps, all these, all these people, can be put in a pendulum. In a pendulum. Okay? I don't know what the other word is. In one end, there's people that say, you have to have this crazy emotion to like, you gotta be like jumping up and down, you gotta be crying, you gotta be falling all over the place. Like, unless you're experiencing that much of a heart emotional change, you're not saved. And the other spectrum, there's another camp that says, no, 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 it's all about tradition. It's all about being proper. It's all about it's all about having the right answers. That's how you know you're saved, right? To answer this, let's take a closer look at verse 14. Which one is it? 
This is Paul describing his life before he was a Christian. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Notice, before Paul was a Christian, he claimed that he's extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. In other words, he's saying he had two things. He had extreme zealousy and he valued tradition. In other words, before Paul was a Christian, he already had intense emotions and he already had respect for tradition. Now, let me point it out. There are people out there that say, unless you have really high emotion, unless you're jumping and falling and crying and speaking in tongues, and ah, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian if you don't do all those things. And this ends up making people doubt their salvation a lot because it's like, I don't, I don't feel like that all the time. I don't go to church and just want to jump and spin and do push-ups. Like, I just don't feel that. I don't know why you do push-ups, but... <laughs> Sorry, I cried so long. <laughs> And we have to be careful here that Paul said he had extreme zealousy. He had high emotions before he was a Christian. High emotions does not necessarily equal godliness. Some people, instead of worshiping God, worship emotions. That's like a guy or a girl who is so in love with the emotions around being in a relationship that they're actually more in love with the emotions more than they are with the person they're supposed to be in a relationship with. You see? It's like they like the idea of being in a relationship more than actually love the person they're in a relationship with. He's saying, no, 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 high emotions doesn't, emotions are good, and we value them. We do. But this goes beyond valuing emotion. This is emotionalism. And usually the people who worship emotions demonizes tradition. Hymns? Hymns? Creeds? Catechisms? That's old people stuff, man. We hear all about the feels. Right? We just want to feel. It doesn't matter that they have deep, amazing truths about God that can change and transform our lives. It's too old. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. True godly zeal, true godly emotions can never be separated with true biblical knowledge as revealed in Scripture. Okay, but then there's another camp, okay, that says you can know that you're saved if you, like, if you, if you behave well, if you, if you, if you kind of really value tradition, right? This camp says that salvation can be seen by solid, robust truth. The more dusty and boring it is, the more godly it is. Hymns, baby, it's all about hymns. Anything written after the 19th century is from the mouth of Satan himself. <laughs> right? There are people that worship traditions. It's all about getting the right answers. It's not about emotions. Emotions are for pansies. And we as a church, we value traditions. That's why we do sing a lot of hymns, and we do read catechisms and creeds. But we must be careful to not fall into the worship of them. That's not called valuing tradition. That's called traditionalism. We value it not because it's old, but because an expression, it's an expression of robust biblical truth that can grow us and help protect this church from heresy. And usually people who worship tradition demonize emotion. Right? Their Christianity becomes more like a reporter who has all the right data about God, but never knows him personally, intimately as a father. Having all the right answers does not necessarily equal godliness either. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, 
which is an Old Testament theology from Deuteronomy 6. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. Just head knowledge, just the right answers in itself does not necessarily equal godliness. True godly knowledge will affect our heart, will affect our passions, and will dictate our actions. I love what my old professor used to say, theology is application. It's not The picture here isn't of a historian that's collected a lot of data about a research subject that's emotionally detached to it. The picture is rather of two people who intimately know each other and whose emotions for each other influence how each other live. Zeal alone is not evidence of salvation. Neither is knowledge alone evidence of salvation. But it is a knowledge of the gospel that Jesus, God himself, died for me, paid for my sins, so that I can have eternal life. And this knowledge, if we truly believe it, if it's truly affected us, will affect our emotions, will influence our passions, and will dictate the way we live our Mondays to our Saturdays, not just Sunday mornings. And it's not that, people, and it's, it's not that Paul lost his zeal when he became a Christian. Look at verse 23. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He still had a lot of zeal. He can't stop preaching the gospel. He was planting churches everywhere. The guy's passionate, no doubt. But his passion and zeal was controlled by, dictated by, informed by correct theology, or at least an understanding of the gospel. Has your emotions about your faith been dictated by truths of the gospel? Or has it only lasted Sunday mornings because it's birthed out of highly emotive music, really, really, really cool lighting, an emotional charged language on stage, which will only last you a few hours on Sunday and maybe leftovers for three hours Sunday afternoon. Rather, it should be dictated by, born out of a correct knowledge of God and his love for you in the gospel, which will last you beyond Sunday. Or maybe, just maybe, your Christianity is just something that you do. Your, 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 your parents were Christians, your families are Christian, your parents, your grandparents. It's just tradition to you. Or maybe you come from a particular social uh, uh, um, demographic in our culture that is often associated with Christianity. So you just thought to yourself, okay, my parents are Christian, my family is a Christian, all my friends are Christians. I guess, I guess I'll be Christian too. Be careful. That does not necessarily mean the gospel has impacted your life in a way that's saving. Neither zeal disconnected from gospel truth nor gospel truth disconnected from an effect in our lives is evidence of salvation. The evidence is a changed life that has been impacted, has been marked by an understanding of gospel truth, which informs the way we live our lives. Now, consider it for a second. Consider that this gospel is, is actually true like Paul's actually arguing here. If Paul's gospel is true, God, God really died for you so that you can spend eternity with him. Just imagine that being tr true. <laughs> Would it not change your life? God died for you. So, We've gone this far, but we haven't really dove into much detail about Paul's 
gospel. We've mentioned it now and then, but I want us to take a look about what this gospel really is. What is this truth that has impacted Paul so much that it made him change his whole lives? Okay, last point, number three. The gospel is not dependent upon the will of man. To see the answer to this point, we have to look one more time on verse 14 until the beginning of verse 16. So verse 14, 15, and the beginning of 16. I'll read it out loud again. And I want you to notice one thing. I want you to notice how Paul uses the words, I, me, and my. Okay? The way Paul uses the words, I, me, and my, changes as he progresses from 14 up to 16. Okay. 14 describing his life before Christ, 15 and 16 describing his life after Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, notice in verse 14, Paul uses the first person singular, which is I, me, my, okay, in a sentence, as the subject of that sentence. If you know much about grammar, the subject in a sentence is the, is the person or the thing that's doing the action in whatever sentence. So, so I am eating my food. I am the subject of that sentence. I'm doing the actions. In verse 14, Paul uses I, me, and my as a subject. I was advancing. I was zealous. I was doing the work. I was doing the performance. But notice how this switches as we move to verse 15. How does he use the word I, me, and my now? But he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, and was pleased to reveal his son to me. In verse 15, the first person singular no longer becomes the subject, but it becomes the object of the sentence. Now, the object in the sentence is the one that the work is being done to. Okay? I was set apart. I was called. It was revealed to me. And in verse 15, who becomes the subject of the sentence? Who becomes the one doing all the work? He. Who is he? God. He set me apart. He called me by his grace. He revealed the gospel to me. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. It's not dependent on human will. We're not the subjects. We're not doing the work. We're not the ones earning our salvation. We are the ones that is given salvation. We are the receivers of salvific work. Paul is saying, I'm saved not because of anything I've done, not because of my zeal, not because of my knowledge, but because of him who revealed himself to me. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the um, reconciliation. This is Paul's last appeal to the Galatians. If you don't believe my alibi, if you don't believe my changed life, just see how uncontrollable this gospel is. I can't, I didn't, I didn't make it up. I can't even control it. I didn't even choose it. It chose me. Look again at that verse. But he 
who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Paul goes all the way to describing the extent of his powerlessness over this gospel. When he who had set me apart before I was born, Paul can't claim any power over it. He didn't even ultimately choose it. God is the one who set him apart. God is the one who revealed it to him. Let me just, I know this is a sensitive theology subject, whatever, but let me just run through it real quick. All the other verses in the Bible that confirms this concept of God being the one that saves us from end to end. And we cannot go to God and say, Haha, I chose you. That guy in hell, he didn't choose you. Too bad. But I, I chose you. No. The gospel leaves no room to boast. We cannot say that to God. We go to God and we say, Thank you for your mercy for me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 9, 14. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9.11 Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. John 6.37 All that the Father gives me, which we've seen before, he's decided before they were born, will, not might, not maybe, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Last one, Ephesians 1.4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul is saying, I am utterly powerless over this gospel. It is untamable. It rather tamed me. This makes God's love for Paul so much more brilliant. Think about it. The gospel isn't that God's shocked by Paul's sins, and then because he saw his sin, he's giving Paul an opportunity to, to receive him on the cross so he died for him. No. The gospel is that God has always been aware of Paul's sin and what he will do. But yet he died for him on the cross and planned for it from the beginning anyways. The gospel um, is not that um, uh, um, God loves Paul so much that he died on the cross so that maybe Paul would receive me, fingers crossed, I hope he will. No. God made sure to reveal the gospel to Paul at the appropriate time in a manner that saves him to where Paul will come to Jesus. Those the Father has given me will come to me. And I will never cast out. We read earlier, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The gospel isn't just that God died for Paul, and, and, and when, he, when Paul received Jesus as Lord and Savior, Paul now ha has kind of like a blank slate, and it's up to Paul to keep this slate blank. It's up to Paul to kind of keep up his righteousness, to guarantee his own salvation. No. The gospel is God paying for all of Paul's sins, past, present, future, to where he can confidently claim, I will never cast you out. It secures your salvation. In other words, here's the gospel. Listen closely. God planned our salvation before we were born. God executed our salvation on the cross. God, through full payment on the cross, guarantees our salvation forever. In other words, God loved Paul so much that he did not leave the possibility of spending eternity with Paul 
up to chance. God loved Paul so much, he did not leave the possibility of spending eternity with him up to chance. And if you're here today, and you have received this gospel, I can say the same about you as well. That God loves you so much that he will not leave the possibility of spending eternity with you up to chance. In a second, we're going to sing a hymn. And it says, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there, who's made an end to all my sin. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. This gospel wrecked Paul. It shattered him. The God that I fought against for so long loved me, died on a cross for me, and has revealed this truth in my heart so that I may be his forever. Has it wrecked you? Has it shattered you to where worship of him goes beyond worship of anything else that this world has to offer? It's more than just momentary spurts of emotion. It's more than just dry tradition. It's more than just having the right answers. It's God who died for you. Let's pray. Father, this gospel truth now, seep it deeper in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that we may come to you in deeper worship. Father, that we can walk our lives with confidence that we are yours and you are mine. And you are ours that we will now be motivated to live passionately like Paul did and preach this gospel and live it out in word and deed, not to earn our salvation, but because it has been guaranteed on the cross. And that when we do fall into sin, we know we have a great high priest whose name is love. And I will never be taken away from his love because of the cross. Thank you for this gospel. Let it change our lives more than just Sunday morning. Let it affect our hearts and our actions more than just right information. Thank you for this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand to our feet as we sing our response song before the throne of God. Indeed, we have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Before the throne. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfectly a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for before the throne, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfectly a great high priest whose name love whoever lives and pleads for me my name my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart i know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me there's depart no tongue can bid me 
Satan tempts Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there made an end to all my sin because of sinless because this gospel in me. If you are here and you have received this gospel, 
then fall in deeper love with him and know that your salvation is guaranteed, secured in him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in his peace.